0: It's good to see lots of kids walk off to KFC. I want to direct your attention to the inside of the worship guide there, where we've got a little bit of space for some notes, if you want to take some notes. And then uh, we've got questions there for the life groups. Uh, life groups, if you don't know what those are, are, are sermon-based small groups. Uh, we want to continue the study of Genesis that we're going to have taking place today in our lives throughout the week by applying the Word of God, by discussing with one another and, and studying a little bit further what the Bible says to us. Uh, so that's what we do in life groups. And uh, so we take each week those sermon-based questions and uh, meet throughout the week in small groups. want to encourage you to work through those, even if you're not in a life group. Uh, it'd be helpful to to continue to, to be fed with the Word throughout the week. If you've got a smartphone on the version app, you can follow along. Uh, just search under live events. If you don't know what a smartphone is or version or live events, don't sweat it. We believe here at First Christian that the Word of God, that the Word of God is a gift to us. It's a gift given to us, the body of Christ, to feed and to equip us to minister to one another and to the world. So if you've got a Bible with you, I want you to make sure you're ready for us in just a second. We're going to start off in Genesis, the first chapter. Uh, then we'll jump from there to Genesis 37. So you can start off uh, with Genesis one twenty-eight. Uh, we're going to start off there in just a couple seconds. want to have a little uh, sermonette before the sermon. Uh, so this is the pre-sermon sermon. You get two for one today. Um, I just want to give you a little suggestion for your involvement here, for your engagement with the Word here at First Christian. Uh, it, it's one thing to just kind of show up and I talk, and you're following along in Scripture. <laughs> That's good. That's helpful. Uh, but I want to say it's base level. I want to say that it's base level because your engagement with the Word throughout the week is going to have to continue if the Word of God here is going to be fruitful in your life. I, by myself, am not that good. Uh, The Holy Spirit needs to take what we're talking about and what it shows you in the Word throughout the week to feed you. So I want to encourage you to sort of prepare by reading the passage ahead of time for Sunday morning. Uh, We list it on the inside of the worship guide. It's right there for you. You'll know the next coming weeks at the bottom of that first inside page, it tells you where we're studying next week. So you can read ahead. We've got a lot to cover, especially in Genesis where we're covering today four different chapters. Uh, We're not going to get to it all. But if you're not familiar with the basic flow of thought and the characters and what's going on, you will be a little lost. And, and, And so... So we list those for you to prepare. Uh, This talk of of Bible reading and involvement and participation in the body here uh, comes right from our mission as a church. It comes right from our mission as a church. We talk about the three C's, celebrate, cultivate, and communicate. And we want to direct all of our ministry from that mission, that vision. We talk about making disciples who make disciples. It's not just to make disciples, Matthew 28 and lots of other places. It's it's making disciples who make disciples. We want to make disciple makers. So so in basic terms, we work, we pray, we organize around that New Testament mission of developing sold-out followers of Christ who live in defiance of the cultural drift toward lazy Christian living. Hear me clearly. Because to be fed means, this is not the whole jalopy. (laughs) We want to raise believers who live in defiance of the cultural drift toward lazy Christian living. We're called as a church primarily, our number one job is to develop sold out followers of Christ. It It is these kinds of people we want to produce... We want to deem it unacceptable to sit in a pew for an hour and then do nothing else with your Christian life throughout the week. As if it's perfectly acceptable that you don't love and read and study the Word of God on your own. We reject that. That's exactly, however, where lots of believers in the world are. No passion to know and read the Word of God throughout the week. So we want to say very clearly, don't be a lazy consumer Christian. Fight it. Fight it at every possible turn. Because let me say something else that that may sort of hurt. Lazy consumer Christians hardly do anything fruitful for the kingdom. It's all about them. It's all about them. So stop sucking it in and just soaking it in. And start getting out and living the word of God. I can't do it all for you in an hour. You're going to have to do more with yourself and the Holy Spirit throughout the week. It's just how how it has to happen. I'm not good enough. If I were the best preacher on the planet, that would still be the case. You don't have the spiritual resources in you if you're going to be a consumer Christian to feed others. So we want you to be a disciple maker. We want you to care about the lost. The people who don't know Jesus Christ. And if you're going to get to that point, soaking it up for an hour ain't going to get you there. So we want you, we want you, we pray for you, we organize our ministries around the idea of being prepared for worship so that this spirit, so this This service is a spiritual transaction between you and God. That's what we want. That's what it needs to be. So so read ahead, pray beforehand, engage with the Word of God each week, so then, when you come here, this will be a meeting with God through the Holy Spirit. That's how it's going to have to happen. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we, we really do believe in the power of Your Word, to feed and equip us. We pray for intensity of focus on Your Word today in a way that gives us perspective on our own lives. It's too easy to come to worship and and to the Scriptures with a whole host of distractions that are self-focused, that are all about us. We just ask that You would recenter us this morning by the power of Your Holy Spirit. We want to be immersed in Your Word so that we would be less taken with and less in love with ourselves. We want to be taken with your word and immersed in your truth so that the drama of our own lives that easily overwhelms us seems to be unimportant and to fade away in light of your calling in our lives. So Father, we ask that you would refocus hearts and minds on the big picture of the gospel of Christ in the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Sermon two. Uh, you ever find yourself, I know you do because you're human, and I do too, you ever find yourself in a tight spot and yet feel this sort of tangible thing about helplessness to fix it? In a hard circumstance, in a tough spot, and yet helpless to fix it yourself. There are times when I feel like that, and, and I'm going to share one that. Looking back sort of seems like, eh, it wasn't that big a deal. Um, but at the time, for me, it felt like a big deal. It's, it, it's, a, it's a time for me when I was in seminary, and, uh, you know, I'm reading the Word of God, I'm like in the Scripture every day, and I'm, I'm learning great things, and I'm feeling like, God, you've called me to this awesome, awesome ministry. You know, you always feel like that in seminary, and, and I feel like that still today. Um, so I'm feeling like I'm called to this thing, but I'm in seminary, And I live in this tiny shoebox of a room. I mean, small, tiny little room, barely enough room for a bed. Um, Eating a steady supply of ramen noodles twice a day, not exaggerating. I had, actually I bought them by the case, I really did. I went to uh, the local grocery store and bought them by the case. Tiny shoebox of a room, eating a steady diet of ramen noodles, accruing about $12,000 in loans per semester, and uh, all, all at the same time, trying to woo a girl who lives about an hour south of me in, uh, in Chicago, um, who is here today. Um, <laughs> I'm just clearing up that it wasn't some other girl, you know, I just... So here I am in seminary trying to follow God's call, I'm sure I'm in the right place where God has me and and I'm eating ramen noodles and I have $17 in my checking account and my car breaks down. And and it's the second time in two or three months when it's broken down and I don't have money because I just fixed it last time with the money that I didn't have. And so here I am feeling like, God, you called me to this. (laughs) A little help would be nice. My car working, just a minimum of my car working, Lord. That's kind of how I felt at the time. I was in this tough spot, helpless to fix it. Trying to live out the call, but in a tough spot with no way out. In times like that, where we've all been, you sort of wonder where God is in the middle of those circumstances. You sort of wonder, God, I'm living like you've called me and where are you in this? Where's, where are the answers you promised? Where's, where's this blessed calling that you've given on my life? We've all experienced this. Surely you've had times where you're trying to do the right thing, doing what God, God's called you to do best you understand it. And yet the circumstances of your life make you wonder if God is really in it with you. Maybe you've been the, the faithful one in your your spouse left you high and dry with kids to parent and, and no help, no, no resources. Maybe you've been that. Maybe you're in school, you're trying to live a godly witness around your friends, but you feel like you're the only one who seems to give a hoot about the glory of God. Maybe you're without a job, but you're with a mortgage. Maybe you've had long-term sickness or pain, but no answers, no prognosis, no fix. Maybe you've been hoping and trying for a child for years and and no child. You begin to feel lost, sort of forgotten in those kinds of circumstances. Maybe you've lost a loved one, experienced great tragedy. I know many of you have experienced personal abuse. And when you're in those sorts of circumstances, you feel as if you've been forgotten. You feel like you're on an island. Like, you can know intellectually, I'm not the only one who's done this, but but emotionally, all of us feel isolated, alone, disconnected, forgotten. The human condition is like that. It's one where we all eventually, somewhere along the line, experience that kind of suffering and tragedy that makes you wonder, where is God in all of this? Which raises this question. What do you do when you know God's called you to something And you also know you don't have the resources to make it happen. What do you do when you know these two things? Number one, God's called you to something. And number two, you also know you don't have the resources to make it happen. That's exactly the situation in which Joseph finds himself in Genesis 37 to 40. He's called to something big, but he finds himself time after time in these tight spots with no fix in sight. He knew God had called him to something as big as living for his glory. He'd heard his father Jacob tell him over and over and over of God's promise to use their family to bless the world. Genesis 12 and all over the place in Genesis Joseph knew that he was a part of this covenant promise that the Lord was supposed to use to bless the nations. He knows he's called to the family business of being fruitful and of multiplying the glory of God. He knows it because he's been told it. By the way, as an aside, parents, do you talk like that to your kids? Do you, do you pray like that with and for your kids? Lord, we know you've promised in your word that your blessing will be upon this child that you've given to us and that our family, as a wakefield, you've called us by your power to do great things for the kingdom. Do you pray like that for your kids, over them, with them, out loud? Do they hear you give kingdom vision for their lives? Because Jacob did for Joseph. And Joseph needed that when he was in tight spot after tight spot after tight spot. Cast a vision for your kids' lives. So back to Joseph. He's called to the family business of Genesis 128. I want you to turn there for just a second. Genesis 128 is a verse that should be emblazoned forever on your minds, especially if you've been with us for the last eight months. It's, it's where this vision of the kingdom and God's purposes for the world begins as far as it concerns Adam and Eve. In fact, this is the first time, if you're a circler in your Bible, this is the first time God actually speaks to a human being. It's the first time he speaks to a man or a woman in the scriptures. And it's, so he's saying, first things first, make sure you hear this. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Be f- fruitful and multiply, and, and, and fill the earth and subdue it. Now because Jacob had spoken that kind of vision into Joseph's life, he knows that he's called to Genesis 1.28, kind of, a kind of living to that purpose. We know he's about the family business of being fruitful and multiplying. And we'll see that because of that knowledge, because of that familiarity with the purpose of his life, he responds in situations like we find him today, with faithfulness. Joseph hardly has much to say in those hard times, but Scripture records it as as silent faithfulness. But there's a point we need to see before we jump in. When he's in those places, as we'll see, when he's at the bottom of a well, when he's in a prison, when he's in a circumstance where he knows he is helpless to fix it, that's when he knows he is entirely at the mercy of God to accomplish what God's called him to. Don't forget that. It's important. It's where we're headed. He knows at that point that he has finally come to the place where it's God who's got to accomplish what he's called him to. I mean, his brothers are going to leave him naked to die without food or water at the bottom of a well. He's going to find himself unjustly put in prison for doing the right thing. And then at the end of chapter 40, the most lonely verse in this passage, at the very end it says, The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He was in that place of feeling disconnected and forgotten and without answers. So let's follow his story and find out how he gets to that place of feeling forgotten. Genesis 37, we'll pick it up in verse 2 in Genesis 37. It says this, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. So far, so good. A nice young boy just watching the sheep. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Now, that, that little phrase seems sort of insignificant, but Scripture puts it in there for, for a purpose. It's telling us just a smidge of a problem starting up here. He's, he's introducing, scripture is introducing just a hint of a problem. It's making a distinction between Joseph who was born from Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, and the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, whom even Jacob himself considered his, his partial wives, his, his sort of half-breed sons. I'm not making this up. It's in Scripture before it. We're not going to cover it, but you can read back from before. There's sibling rivalry going on. There's favoritism within the family going on. And so even though Jacob, in one ter- on the one hand, is really good at saying, here's what your purpose is, here's what, here's what you're called to, uh, we'll, we'll see in just a second here, he plays favorites with his own family. It says this, Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now the plot begins to thicken even more. The word bad there is literally evil. Joseph brought an evil report of his brothers. Scripture here gives the impression that Joseph was just reporting, just simply reporting how his brothers were doing evil. We're not told exactly, but whatever the case, we're getting some backstory as to why Joseph's brothers didn't like him. Look at verse 3. Now Israel, Jacob's name is now Israel from last week. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his brothers sons more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors this is not good this is not good can you can you imagine loving one of your children more than the others in fact can you imagine loving one of your children more than the others in a way that means you, you give them a special coat <laughs> so that they can parade around in front of the other brothers and say how cool am i and how dumb are you uh, and he's got a long sleeve coat Might have been multicolored, we don't know. Uh, The best we know is that it was at least probably long-sleeved. It might have had lots of other colors. Uh, But Scripture is beginning to bring out that favoritism uh, concept here. And it's beginning to sort of paint an ugly picture, an ugly scene. It's going to get worse here. Look at verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. It's the first time we see that. We'll see it three times. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They, They couldn't even just like... Maintain normalcy with him. You ever get there with somebody? To the place where you, you, you sort of loathe them in a way that you can't even just speak peacefully with him or her? It's like kind of a, a Hatfield-McCoy place. It's not a good place to be. But that's where the brothers were with Joseph. In four verses, we go from nice, young, 17-year-old man pasturing the flock, to, or, or boy pasturing the flock, to intense, rivalry between the brothers. It gets worse. Verse five, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. That's the second time. Their hatred just kept growing. Verse six, he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. There means to, means to communicate the idea that, that he couldn't hold it in. He was so excited to tell them, he, and he couldn't even hold in what he was about to say. Hey guys, check out this dream I had. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, binding bundles of grain. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? I think that's a a kind translation, perhaps. Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Three times you have heard about their hatred, and it's growing. They hated him even more, even more. So Scripture is obviously setting us up here for something bad that's going to happen to Joseph. Verse 9, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed yet another dream. You think he would realize that they're not exactly enthused to hear. Uh, Just be quiet, Joseph. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? In other words, the sun and the moon were were Jacob and his wife. Probably Leah at this time, not Rachel, since Rachel's already dead in chapter 35. So so Jacob saw the sun and the moon to be he and his wife and the uh, 11 stars, his whole family bowing down. Obviously, these dreams emphasize the idea that Joseph will one day exercise authority over his family which they didn't exactly take kindly to, of course. And it's why his brothers ended up calling him the dreamer. They called him the dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. You know, I I bet they called him other things too, but um, (laughs) they they didn't exactly like him because the sibling rivalry, the favoritism, was sort of rearing its ugly head. So, So verse 11, the result of all this, of course, is his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying, in mind, They had already decided about Joseph, of course, <laughs> and Jacob, and I think I would have done the same thing, chides Joseph at the time and says, listen, dude, just, just chill out. Okay, we got you. You're better than us. Um, but he, he, he remembers it. He knows better than to entirely dismiss Joseph's dream. So this, this whole section at the beginning is setting up the whole scene for what follows almost all the way through chapter 50. Uh, this, this main section here in Genesis is here from 37, almost all the way through chapter 50. I've uh, got a great couple more weeks here in Genesis. I'm really excited about the next two weeks as well as this week, uh, where we're headed here. This is setting up the scene for how it's going to continue to spiral downward for Joseph. So let's look at briefly at how that happens here in the next few chapters. In verses 12 through 22 in 37 here, Jace, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob sends Joseph to check out on the brothers who are off taking care of the flock. Uh, they're probably taking care of the flock so that they could sell it. They're, they're moving far away. And, and, and this isn't something where he, he just like went out to the field by their house. They're, they're going way out, as many as 60 miles up. I think we have a map for you here. 60 miles up to, to trade the flock. They start down here in Mamre, M-A-M-R-E, down here next to the Dead Sea. And they go up as many as almost 60 miles. First, Joseph goes to Shechem, and then he ends up going to Dothan because he didn't find them in uh, Shechem. And that other line that comes across the Jordan, the solid red line, comes across the Jordan and then down through into Egypt. That's a normal trading route where Ishmaelite and foreign traders would come through. So that, those are the people who end up getting Joseph here in, in just a couple minutes here. And uh, that's probably where he went. So he goes to bring them supplies, uh, probably brings them food. So um, this... This continues to transpire until um, until verses nineteen to twenty, where they say, like we talked about before, "Here comes this dreamer." They see him coming, and he says, and they say to him, "Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits." Verse twenty. So they they've plotted and schemed, and and then they do that. Verse 23, it says this. We'll pick up there. 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Here's one of those moments. Here's one of those key moments where you're looking up at God and you're saying, Hello, Lord. Trying to do what you called me to. But here I am stuck. There is no fix. I cannot get out of a deep hole. I have no water. They've taken my clothes. I'm going to die. How exactly do you plan to bless the world through me? <laughs> how exactly am I supposed to, to carry on this important mission? Well, at least I think that's how I would respond. And I'm sure that's how many of us respond in those circumstances. But it's not Joseph's response. In fact, there is no hint of of sarcasm or bitterness or anger at his tight spot with no fix. Joseph had faith that God would not forget him. And he didn't. The fix came rather quickly. Oh, there would be other times when he was in holes. We'll see about that soon. But but the fix came rather quickly. Because even though a couple of his brothers got the bright idea to, to, to go back and to get him out so they could sell him, it was too late. The Ishmaelite traders had come by and sold him for 20 shekels of silver. Uh, 20 shekels of silver is, is not that great, by the way. Uh, the going rate was at least 15 to 30 at the time. So, so it's another, you know, another sign of sort of Joseph's pathetic circumstances here. Here I am, supposed to be a part of the blessing for the whole world, and I'm sold for 20 shekels of silver. So these traders take him to Egypt. They take him on down on their way. And Joseph ends up in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain of the guard for the Pharaoh. He's one of the bigwigs in the whole land. And so things are beginning to look up because at least he's alive and he's got a job. And he knows that God's got a plan. There's no sign of how it's going to play out yet, of course. But we see no hint in Joseph that he is pitying himself or that he is angry or that he is bitter. No hint. So we pick up his story in chapter 39. Verse 2, 39 verse 2. Here's the turning point in the story. And we know it's the turning point because of the beginning of verse 2. If you're an underliner or a circler or a notes taker, you want to write down this phrase. This is the key turning, part, turning point in the story. The Lord was with Joseph. Four times we'll see this phrase. Variations of it a couple other times. But four times we'll see the Lord was with him. And he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Verse 3, his master, Potiphar, the captain of the guard, his master saw that, here it is again, the Lord was with him. And he saw that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From time to time, he made him overseer in his house. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. Things are beginning to look up for Joseph, for sure, but they're about to get worse again. Verse 6, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Kind of, a, kind of a funny way to all of a sudden change what's going on and just say, he's handsome in form and appearance. That's, that's important for what follows, of course. It's a not a good sign. After a time, his master's wife, verse 7, this is Potiphar's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. The words for, for casting her, her eyes there are like an intense One after one, one, time after time kind of gaze at somebody. She's intently looking at him. It's not like she's looking for others. Uh, She is fixed on Joseph. And she says, lie with me. This isn't her trying to get him to to fib with her, of course. Uh, Just in case there was any doubt. Verse 8, he refused. But he refused. He responded in a godly manner in a situation where he could have manipulated things for his advantage. But he wanted to do God's work God's way. And so he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. And then he says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Let's press pause for a second here. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? If you're an underliner, underline sin against God. Joseph recognizes, as we all should, that sin is not ultimately against a person. It includes that, sure. (laughs) We all feel the effects of that, sure. But sin is always, ultimately, most pointedly, an affront and an offense against the character of God. As an aside, this is a reason to not have to be personally offended at every slight against you. If, if just that, if just that is something that we could get a handle on, life would be a lot easier for all of us. It's a reason to not have to be offended at every slight against you. We, we, we go kind of crazy as if sin is always this personal affront against us. And it is inclusive of that insofar as sin manifests itself in ways that we feel the effects of. I don't mean to discount that. But I do mean to say that if that's where it stops, then this world is truly only about you. The mature believer in Christ grieves because the glory and the goodness of God is obscured through sin. In other words, ask yourself this question. Do I grieve at sin because it offends God? Or do I grieve at sin because it offends me? Joseph understood clearly. Of course it would hurt him and hurt others and hurt his witness. But it's a personal affront against God. Do I grieve at sin because it offends me or because it offends God? A lot of people are in the category of it offends me and that's what I care about. Aside over. Moving on. She keeps after him. Potiphar's wife keeps after him day after day after day. And, and, and one day when he tried to escape her grasp, she grabbed his coat, took it to Potiphar, his, her husband, and made it look like Joseph, Joseph was coming after her. And so we pick up in 39. Uh, verse. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 19 of chapter 39. Verse 19, chapter 39 says this as soon as his master that's potiphar as soon as potiphar heard the words that his wife spoke to him this is the way your servant treated me his anger was kindled and joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in prison Uh, by the way this is probably a relatively small punishment because when when the master of the house's wife says something and he has reigned over most of the kingdom except for Pharaoh himself. She says something and it could easily be something that he was killed for. This would normally be the kind of thing that uh, would have easily resulted in Joseph's death. But again, the, 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 the witness he had lived in front of Potiphar and God looking after uh, Joseph meant that he was spared his, uh, his life. So verse 21, here it is again, the key to the passage. Underline it if you want. The Lord was with Joseph. But, in contrast to the circumstances, the Lord was with Joseph, and he showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And, again, Joseph rises to the top, And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because, here it is again, the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Well, it it began to look like like Joseph was going to get out of this. And then in chapter 40, the the cupbearer and the baker uh, to the king, the pharaoh, were thrown into jail and, and they each had a dream, and they, they didn't know what to make of these dreams. There are three pairs of dreams, by the way. This is the second pair of dreams, and uh, this last pair, the last pair comes next week. So look at chapter 40, verses 8 and 9, where we pick up this, this dream of the cupbearer and the, the baker. Verse 8, they say to him, they said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said, giving credit where it's due, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Long story short is that Joseph interprets their dreams and and it turns out exactly as he said it would. The baker is killed and the cupbearer is restored to his previous position. And then we come to the saddest words in the whole passage. And they describe the state of affairs for Joseph at this point. Keep in mind that in verse 14, Joseph had had already asked the cupbearer to remember him when he got back to Pharaoh. Yet, verse 23, look at 23 there. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The cupbearer forgot Joseph. Another time, another place where... (laughs) Joseph feels like that sitting on the side of a road with a car that I can't fix because I have $17 and I don't have a cell phone because they weren't invented yet. Those places in your life where you feel helpless for a fix. In a tough spot like that, we are so easily tempted to cry out, foul, (laughs) what's wrong? Have you forgotten me, God? Joseph, of course, would have been tempted to to cry out, what's up with this Lord? i going to need a little help here because I can't get myself out of this one. Perhaps he felt that way, but Scripture doesn't report it like that. Scripture simply records Joseph's silent faithfulness. And it records four times. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him was with him. At the beginning we asked the question, what do you know, I mean, I'm sorry, what do you do when you know God's called you to something and you don't have the resources to make it happen? What do you do when you know you're called to something and you don't have the resources to make it happen? Friends, that is exactly when you know you're following God and not yourself. And if you don't come to that place, faith in self ain't going to get you out of your hole. When you're called to something and you know you don't have the resources to make it happen, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. That's what the Christian life is like. And that is when the fact that the Lord is with you can actually matter. That's when the fact that the Lord is with you can actually matter. And not till then. Not till then. Father in heaven, we have lived life As if you weren't with us. As if as if the direction of our lives was dependent upon us. And we know it is insofar as you've called us to something to which we want to live our lives. But Father, we have we've loved idols of self. We've gone after pathetic goals. We've lived like you weren't there. And so, Father, we just ask for you to to open our eyes and hearts to the truth that you are always there when, when we need you. But you're always there. Always there to provide for us what we truly need. And so, Father, open our eyes to those true needs. Open our hearts so that we would realize that you alone fix our real problems. Help us to continue this week to engage with the words so that the lessons of the life of Joseph can be lived out by us. Give us, Father, silent faithfulness that doesn't feel the need to respond in anger or sarcasm or bitterness. Father, you've got our lives in your hands and so we ask for Continued faithfulness toward living lives that are about your purposes and your goals, that we would love, love living for the sake of your glory more than anything else. Amen.